On August 22, 2012, novelist Nicholson Baker quietly uploaded a song to YouTube. There's a beautiful place that I've never been. It was a protest song. It's an island in the East China Sea. To stop the construction of a military base. It's Jeju Island. Literary types were puzzled. Baker had studied at the Eastman School of Music as a young man, but what did these songs mean? Was Nicholson Baker planning on becoming the literary world's answer to Robin Thicke? It turned out that these were efforts related to Baker's latest novel, Traveling Sprinkler, a sequel to The Anthologist. It continues the gripping and picaresque tale of a poet named Paul Chowder. This time around, Chowder is making music. Traveling Sprinkler is a subtle political novel about the American relationship between leisure and politics. And this book makes the subtle suggestion that embracing the very marvels of reality may, in fact, lead us to a new set of humanist ideals. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to face the darker parts of reality if we keep our essential sense of curiosity intact. My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. If you're listening to us for the first time, hello there, welcome. You can listen to more than 500 other episodes with writers, filmmakers, artists, numerous other nifty people at www.batsegundo.com. You can also ping us on Twitter at at sign, B-A-T-S-E-G-U-N-D-O. Please be sure to spread the word. And also, please rate us and review us on iTunes. Word of mouth will help to keep this program going. And now... Without further ado, here's the incomparable Nicholson Baker. Okay, so I am here once again with Nicholson Baker, who is most recently the author of Traveling Sprinkler. Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It seems like we're both uh, in need of desperate fuel, or there's been a lot of uh, preparation before this conversation. Well, we're sitting in a, it's a fairly early hour in the morning, yeah. and um, and I, I were... About four hours ago, I was just lying in bed thinking, I just, just kill me now. I, I <laughs> do not, I want to sleep, you know, that's yeah. a desperate thing. So I haven't slept too well, but sometimes I, that gives that kind of pleasurable uh, lack of sleep feeling, you know, that yeah. feeling where yeah. you're, it's almost hallucinat- hallucinatory. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. Okay. Dreamlike. Jungian. Um, so anyway... Let's talk Paul Chowder. In the anthologist, the first of these two novels, there's this moment where Paul Chowder, he describes how he's fond of books of poems, because no matter where he flips around, he can always be at the beginning. And, as he says, many, many beginnings. It occurred to me that this is also the perfect description for the internet, which actually appears quite prolifically and, and, and is almost a, a sort of cultural repository in the second Paul Chowder book, Traveling Sprinkler. You seem to have, in many cases, swapped the names of poets and real people from The New Yorker with people in bookstores, such as the great Miss Liberty at River Run Brooks. Oh, um, yes. And, uh, of course, I actually found a lot of those tobacco dip videos on YouTube. You were actually quoting directly from them. Oh, sure. Yeah, you yeah. don't want to make those up. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> you don't too... want to make those up? <laughs> no, those are too great. They're too great as is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you've written a good deal about the internet and essays, and I have to ask, to what extent do you feel that the internet has almost replaced or augmented poetry? There's certainly plenty of digital enjambment out there. So, you know, I'm wondering about this. <laughs> Digital enjambment. Yeah. What a great idea. Um, 
Well, I, I think what what the internet has done is just is it's 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 enormously enriched our lives, and and and, and it does have that feeling of pieces, many uh, bright fragments all over the place, and and um, poems also are short and fragmentary, and uh, and you kind of come across them and and have that moment and then go away. But I guess well, I guess the the difference is that um, I I use the internet. I I kind of dip in constantly to learn things, whereas when I'm in a m- mood to read a poem or w- when I just happen to read a poem, it slows everything down and it it has kind of the opposite effect on me. Yeah, it doesn't make me want to leap off in eighteen directions. It makes me want to just stop and say, "Oh my God, that." that's really that pulled that thing apart that held me still you know so it has that has that opposite effect so the two are i guess in some ways are in competition with each other but in some ways are similar what's the future of poetry with these promising distractions this enjambment of a different sort (laughs) the future of poetry is independent i think of the ways that we uh publish things Mm -hmm. And um, it's more—it's probably more, cl- more closely linked to the future of pop music than yeah. some poets w- would want to admit, because they want to have that division. They want to say that there are song lyrics and there are poems, but obviously, the two are, you know, short clumps of words that g- gen- often rhyme or have some kind of metrical thing happening. Um, and I, certainly the future of song lyrics is terrific, I yes. think, isn't it? I mean, we, 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 have we ever, in, in the history, and certainly in the history of my life, have, has there ever been a time when you just are constantly discovering new songs and old songs and comparing things, and there are all these great websites that tell you the history of, of a certain lyrical idea? I mean, um, it's really happening. Yeah. So I, I, I would think that, that the strength of that thread... Or, or that theme is going to propel poetry forward. And then are, there also pe- uh, there's also kind of the realization that some of modernism was uh, a mistake. Not, not all of it, but some of it was um, aggressive in the wrong way and was um, kind of disturbingly exclusive and rejecting of comprehensibility and all that so maybe and and, and so the, the poets I like um, have learned from all of those terrific things that happened in the early part of the 20th century sure but they um, they want to be read you know Paul Chowder's songwriting is not a new development there is in fact this song in the anthologist that goes I'm in the barn I'm in the bar barn I'm in the barn in the afternoon <laughs> so um, you know I why do you think uh, songwriting turned out to be more of a muse than poetry for Paul Chowder this time? Was it just kind of uh, jumping off some of the hip-hop uh, schemes that you were analyzing in The Anthologist? Or You were, of course, recording these songs and putting them onto YouTube, which many of us were watching with some degree of curiosity. <laughs> you know? So, uh, I, you know, to some degree, I guess, uh, this is a form of method writing. I, I, I'm, wondering, uh, I'm wondering how Chowder's... Uh, sensibilities and his affinities kind of permutated here. Well, I think uh, Chowder is a guy who would love to be a better poet than he is, yeah. and he's looking for a way 
out. He's looking for a way out of some of, of a kind of situation in which he's trapped in in the level that he can reach as a poet. So he's looking for a way out, but he's also looking for a way back in. And he, I mean, I I certainly share this with with him. I share you know ninety percent of his thoughts. So I could just say um, that poetry is beautiful and calls to you. And then there there's moments where you just think, God, I need I need I need something different, something more. I don't understand it. I don't understand why so many people do it, all that feeling. And getting back to music and trying to kind of fit two art forms together is really hard and excitingly, excitingly challenging. And it was for me it, it, that uh, to, to imagine him as a lyric writer not a very good one, but, you know, he does his best. Because, you know, song lyrics are so different. They have to be simpler. And when you're writing song lyrics and trying to match them to a melody or invent a melody, the the words that come out are different than the words that come out if you're just sitting with a typewriter. Yeah. So, so I think it just was the thrill of the chase. It was the excitement of the idea that this maybe is the key. Yeah. So if he and if I can possibly, uh, you know, write some tunes or uh, or get some rhythms going that, you know, have a certain bouncy danceability or hummability or something, wow, you know, that is fun. And then manage to, you know, get some words going. I mean, it's just a whole new, it felt to me as once I started to play around with... uh, music again like a like a sort of new chapter yeah in my life and so when i was writing writing the book and writing this i was writing the novel and writing songs sort of at the same time did you also become an astute uh scholar of all the various dance genres much like paul chowder or did you did you go down that rabbit hole as well yeah Yeah. sure of course i bought a textbook of called dance music oh so that it was actually that textbook yeah yeah yeah, i studied it um very very thick, very heavy textbook. Um, and, you know, dance music really puzzles me in a way. <laughs> Still, I don't really fully get it because the songs are too long. I, I, I love to listen to a loop, and I'll, I'll happily listen to 16 bars of a loop, and then another layer comes in, and 32. And at some point, I, I, I want the song to be over, and I think because I am sort of uh, grew up with the Beatles, I want yeah. it to be over in around two and a half to three minutes. And dance songs because you're supposed to dance to them, yeah. and they segue with other songs. Go on a very long time, um, and so I really haven't, still haven't uh, learned the you know the form of of the dance song. But I, but when I'm writing, I listen to them all the time. Yeah. But all of the songs that you did as Nick Baker mm-hmm. sort of get into that kind of trance state of a constant loop and a constant uh, series of rhythms where you're sort of promulgating some kind of. Uh, Concerned about politics or uh, or something along those lines, and I and these uh, some of them actually go on quite long as well. So I mean, you know, is the loop really the way to uh, identify uh, the dance song? I, I mean, mm-hmm. did you did you start off with loops? Did you did you? I mean, I, I almost don't want to direct you to Looperman. Are you familiar with this site? They have all sorts of loops you can use for free um, that I, I use for this particular program. Really? As well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't. Um... 
I don't ever use loops or you know there are lots of I use Logic Pro, which okay. is a, Apple's music yeah. software, um, just as I, as my character does in the book. Yes. Um, it's two hundred dollars. Tons of tons of instruments. Fantastic deal, and it does everything you needed to do. But um, although it isn't Pro Tools, which is you know this industry standard and all that, which is six hundred dollars, and I couldn't afford that. But um, did you actually go down and get a shotgun mic at PNH? <laughs> absolutely, you did. Okay, you, all the you, you had that same similar problem of like, oh, do I need to lay down a lot of money for this great mic? Wow. No, my I, all my theories about the importance of stereo sound versus mono sound, everything I just dumped into the book, and um, I, I, I believe in stereo. I'm a strong believer in stereo. <laughs> so I bought that. I bought the mic not from B and H. Oh yes, I bought it, but not from B and H. Uh, yeah, I bought it from B and H. Wow. Uh, and I, in fact, I thought of bringing it along because it's kind of soothing when yeah. you're traveling to do some. Uh, music and i thought if i i could practically fit the mic stand and the mic is about uh, yes. three three feet long and and it's it's pretty durable so i think i thought i could put in the suitcase and i thought no you you know it, it might something might happen is it the road mic or i can't remember it's um atk or something i'm sorry that's me oh i'll, I'll turn this off uh, no it's actually me or is it I think it's me telling me that uh, <laughs> telling me that tomorrow I'll be in Washington D.C. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm turning mine off too. I'll be at the D.C. No, book well, well, my my power is actually about to go out. So there oh. you go. Um, oh, so okay, so it was a, okay, but let me. So yeah, yeah. so loops. Um, there there are different ways to think about the word loop, and 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 most dance songs and a lot of pop songs these days are built on the looping principle which is but but you can but what you don't want to do is take somebody else's loop and say oh wow that sounds good i'll use it in my song at least i don't want to do that yeah. because you want to build something that is your own so i usually start with a little piano riff that goes on for four or eight bars, a little something, a chord, just an interesting chord, or I start with a maybe a hi-hat sound that sounds, you know, just a little bit odd and interesting, or maybe a, a, some percussion that has a bit of pitch to it um, that, that then makes me think of another sound. Then I layer using a lot of trial and error and and a certain amount of just dumb luck and, you know, whatever incompetence yeah layer layers over that until i have say 15 l layers of sound yeah and that's my loop so yeah. i that's and and the nice thing is then um when it goes right you know you that's sort of the loop in all of its fully um official big time near the end of the song glory but you might want to take out five tracks from that when you start and then you know and of course the kick drum might come in suddenly uh 16 bars along or you're, something you're a big uh, proponent of the kick drum everybody is. Yeah, yeah you can't not be a proponent of the kick drum <laughs> except that it's kind of an embarrassing term you know kick drum it sounds <laughs> sounds sort of like the da 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 dum boom 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 you know it's just but it, it is. sound like john philip sousa or yeah something. <laughs> i mean it sounds like it, 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 it but what it is it's you know it's just a it's a massive kind of a chest vibrating sound that 
happens every beat or 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 what, however you want to vary it. And yeah. um, and the it, once you get into this world, the the theology of of kick drum sounds, sounds and the theology, num- huh? <laughs> the whole the whole the the number the thousands of tiny yeah. variations and the way you can make a chesty kick drum but with this element of a pop on the top that so that you can still get the sense of of something bursting but also get that kind of subwoofer whomp yeah. that all of that people think about that you have no idea how seriously people take that yeah uh, well you probably do you're you know into music yes so. Well, this is really interesting that your own particular music, you basically say no to taking another loop. And yet, in the fiction, we've established that you're actually drawing very close from reality and from real-world examples, sure. which might almost be similar to taking a loop and meshing it with another loop. And, and, I, and I'm, wondering, um, I'm wondering why music allows one set of principles and... Uh, and fiction offers another one? Or is it really sort of the expression of a sentence that offers the distinction between music taking loops and uh, fiction taking from cultural reference and so forth? Well, yeah, I, um, that's really an interesting thought. I think that I, I am always reluctant to to quote every anything without quotation marks. And yeah. um, so I don't, I don't even, I don't believe in, you know, hip hop, the world uses sampling a lot, uh, where you take, take a couple of nice sounds, the riff, maybe the chorus and, and do, do things. And I, and it's obviously brilliant and it, and they've made such great discoveries and combinations. It's just not something that I'm ready to do yet. And I think it's because as a writer, I mean, I just, I can't, Bear the idea, even that, even voluntar- involuntarily, I would be, without remembering, quoting somebody else's phrase and thinking it was my own. It's just not something that I ever, ever, ever want to do. Unless you devise a specific sound that could offer in lieu of a quotation mark, <laughs> some sort of like um, a very spe- special percussive sound that nobody else has, that everybody agrees upon, and then yeah. like, all right, here's the time where we, you know, take from a '70s funk uh, funkadelic or something. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, in Traveling Sprinkler, Paul Chowder name-checks both Medea Benjamin and Glenn Greenwald. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting line, and this was written before Edward Snowden. What good does it do me to read Glenn Greenwald's excellent blog? He's right about everything, and I'm glad he's doing it, but it doesn't seem to have any effect. Well, au contraire. <laughs> Granted, uh, he is talking about this in relation to Roz, uh, but, you know... Paul Chowder, to me, is more of a short-sighted version of your typical Baker hero who Mm. is really kind of taking in the world and seeing it with uh, a kind of wonder. And also, it's not unlike what he said of of podcasters, where he basically says, they'll keep on pumping it out, but then they'll puff up and die, (laughs) which we got into a minor disagreement, but that got cleared up. But I actually wanted to ask you, why do you think that Paul Chowder does not really appreciate the long-term effect of keeping at it and sticking at it? I mean, because that is just as much a part of the journey of being uh, an observer, mm-hmm. of being an intellectual seeker, of being a curiosity type, uh, a curious type. And so, you know, that that is very curious why he, this is outside his temperament. 
Well, I mean, I think you put it beautifully, Ed. You have to be patient. You have to keep saying the things over and over again. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that um, we all don't have moments of despair, when, when, you know, which happened, let's say, in the ramping up to the first Iraq war. All those brilliant yeah. op-ed pieces, all that marching, all that uh, sustained argumentation that made the case that this was a mistake was for naught. It was going to happen. It was scheduled, it, you know, planned in the, whenever it was, the launch date was planned and it happened. And that filled me with a kind of despair and yeah. because I thought, what, what is the function of, of rational argument and public discourse when it's just not going to work? When, when there's that feeling, that kind of wave of almost frenzy or just war, thirst for war, um, and I think it's worth including that sentiment if we're going to be true to our own political lives, which are mixtures. You go up and down. Sometimes you think, well, my God, we're, we're making progress and good ideas are coming out. And good people like Mitya Benjamin are saying incredibly powerful, moving things and brave things. And, and then it all seems for naught and it, it, it doesn't get anything accomplished so you then feel that despair so i had i just had chowder follow the ups and downs of that but i thought i hinted that towards the end you know he he said um there's a moment where uh towards the end i think where he said well i'm glad uh his friend tim gets arrested you know i'm glad and he says i'm glad tim is writing the book yeah and the point is he's not paul chowder is too is is too caught up in his in his own worries his own love complexities and the mixed upness of his own life to do something sustained like write a book against drones but he's very glad someone else is doing it and and at some points he thinks that may actually do something in my case i'm trying to in a sneaky way, do the same thing. I'm trying to say, I am going to present you with a human life. And this is a person that, if, I'm, if, if it works, you're going to recognize this guy. You're going to see some things about people in this person that, that you think, well, that's familiar, you know. And you're going to see him struggle and have dissatisfactions and give you some little political ideas to think about. So by the end of the book... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have tired you out or s disgusted you with over politicizing. I hope, although maybe I, you know, redline there. But I'm. I. I'm going to have included that component in a fictional life, and that's so. The, the aim of the book was political, in, in a sense. It was to try to write some sort of uh, anti-intervention book, but to do it. Um, singingly, you know, to do it, to, to, to sing the pain a bit and, and include all the other distractions that a normal life has. Yeah, but there are two interesting points here because both Glenn Greenwald and Medea Benjamin this year, mm -hmm. I mean, when Medea Benjamin uh, basically uh, shouted out to Obama in, in a way that nobody else would, wow. and suddenly at that moment, 
She was taken seriously after all these years of ridicule. Same goes with Greenwald. You centered on the two figures who stuck it out and actually became a vital part, I think, of the political discourse. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I'm also thinking of Chowder's kind of vacillating political position in comparing it to Jay from Checkpoint, where uh, basically he wants to assassinate Bush for the good of humankind. Uh, and that also is a kind of intervention as well. And, and I'm, I'm curious why, uh, why every sort of political argument that you approach in your fiction mm-hmm. tends to involve an intervention of some kind. It's almost like either either an intervention that comes from within or an inter- intervention that comes from without. It's almost like, uh, I mean, is this really just kind of what you see as the American impulse right now? I mean, we're, we're clearly not in the streets complaining about drones or complaining about the surveillance state and all that. But mm-hmm. uh, but it is it is something that this that that conviction does face intervention in, in all of your fiction. I think. Well, to get first to say about I mean I totally admire and totally yeah. I, I, who wouldn't admire what Glenn Green, Greenwald did in with with Snowden, which was all beyond, before, but I. I love his blog. I admire it so much. I'm terribly jealous of his ability to stick with it and to be patient and to go after and to say similar things but bring new facts into it. And and Medea Benjamin is really even in a in a high I mean I just I can't stand it. She's she's so brave and I love that. So I You're think envious put, of the bravery? Well, I'm I think I think you know, I have been to marches a little bit yeah. and and I published a some a, a book a political like human smoke was a yes, very controversial book and it's really hard it really hurts um sometimes the uh, the criticism the sneeriness the unfairness um the the kind of misrepresentation of of what you're trying to do in order to make you into a figure of ridicule in order to make whatever you have to say not have any weight you know it it does hurt and it it's hard and i can only do it once in a while mm-hmm. and and even when i'm doing it i'm doing it about the second world war you know i'm doing yeah. it i'm saying oh okay i i i you know i i'll write a few letters and sign some petitions but i i'm and I'll march. I mean, I was up in Portland with at an anti-Syrian intervention, you know, uh, candlelight vigil, lighting candles, and I'm, you know, but I, I'm going to retreat to another time or another and try to make the argument a different way. I'm trying to, you know, undermine the militarist impulse by undermining some of the justifications for the Second World Wars. I'm trying to do it indirectly, but it's also an escape from the. Oh, uh, I don't know. They just the. It's so it's so hard to talk about the present in a fresh way. That's the hard part. The names, the names are so familiar, and I don't want to hear the name Obama. I don't want to hear the the name Assad. I'm tired of the names, <laughs> um, and and yet that's obviously those are the names you have to use. And so you know, it just it feels like you're you need to figure out another way so so if you hear a world leader's surname blathered constantly on the media this is political recoil this is i cannot handle this this is basically you having this extremely uh, attuned 
relationship with language, and this is kind of interfering with your political involvement. Is that safe to say? Or? Well, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm involved. Yeah. I follow the stuff. Yeah. I just mean that if I, it's, it's one thing to hear the name. It's another thing if you're writing to use the, were the the place names, the names of army divisions, whatever it is, the the names of secret agencies or something, all the, that all that kind of little nest of vocabulary that you have to use when you're talking about a certain political present moment. Yeah, that that is just harder to 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 write about yeah. because what what are you doing? You're using, uh, you know, um, you just have these. Uh, these blocks, these wooden blocks that are too clumsy and too and not they they're overused and and, and they feel un they feel inflexible and in that they force phrase certain kinds of phrases out and that's what I have to get over yeah I mean and that's what I was trying honestly to do yeah. with those. Protoss songs, my, first in my own voice, and then um, with, I thought, okay, I, I, am, I am beyond unhappy about the kill list, you know, or, or any of these things. The kill list is a perfect example. I mean, as soon as I say it, something in you goes, oh, you know. I mean, I, you can't help it. Yeah. It's just Obama's kill list, three words, and we think, okay, that's all for me. You know, I, I know, I, you know. We're all okay. We agree, but if you, if so, I thought, okay, but I will, if I can write a song that sings, that does something twisty with melody, not that twisty, <laughs> uh, you know, that I will have, I will take the argument further without actually taking it further. Well, this is this is very interesting. You're you're almost describing something that sounds like synesthesia, but it's also interesting in light of the fact that in the songs, both Chowders and Bakers, mm -hmm. uh, you often stretch out the word to over several minutes or a phrase. Mm -hmm. Is is this a way of reclaiming um, a name? Uh, why why do you think that uh, you're, in, you're, you're, res, you're, you're constantly resisting this cliche, do you think, because you may actually succumb to it, and this may actually inform the language in which you actually express your political sentiments. Or, well, remember, not all the um, not all the songs in the Chowder book are protest songs by any means. No, 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 I mean, no. Most of them are love songs or unhappy in love kind of songs. And um, there's a song about doctors. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, stretching the word out. Well, the thing that songs do, and I mean, not my songs don't do it the way real songs do it, but Marvin Gaye, when he says baby, says it stretched out yeah. in sexual healing. And, and suddenly the word baby is just a totally different word. Or, you know, hello, all those kinds of things. The, the way a piece of music can pull one syllable out is fascinating. And it makes you th think about the word uh, because it's uh, because it's in, it's reached a level of hyper repetition. Let's say in Tracy Chapman's "Change," would you change? Would you change? She keeps keep saying. Um, so you hear the word "change" all those times, and then it just and it's sung, and it it just occupies a different place in your mind as a result of that repetition. There's a lot of repetition, and it it makes you look at the word in a different way. Um, so. 
that's and that's part part of it. So if you so what I wanted, okay, let me take a protest song for you. Um, the right of the people. All right, is 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 a song that I wrote in the voice of Paul Chowder. Uh, the right of the people to meet in a park and blah 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 protest. Um, and I was just I was I'd seen a lot of really unhappy making footage of protesters peaceably stopped and having pepper spray sprayed in their eyes. They're up in the trees and the guys up there, you know, I don't know, slicing away shirts so that the pepper spray can burn and, and zip cords. And I'd been to a march with, while watching Ellsberg get, get arrested and just feeling that, why is it that we were not allowed to stand on a public sidewalk that's open to pedestrians and hold a sign and say, no, we do not want you to blow up things in Libya and Afghanistan. It's done. It's over. We don't want that. Um, uh, that's all so familiar. What I'm saying to you is boring. You know, you know this. Yeah. I know this. It's obviously people should have the right to peaceable assembly. So I just took the lines peaceably from the Constitution, peaceably to assemble, to petition for redress. And I thought, wow, if I could just, you know, come up with a peaceably to assemble and just sing it and have, you know, and harmonize myself with it. So there's five or six kind of harmony versions of my own singing. Um, that I would actually be singing the Constitution, you know? Oh, is it an it's an amendment to the yeah. Constitution, you know? And why not? Yeah, you know that's that's the idea. Is just see if there's a new way to present the old words. So that the, the simple incantation without singing uh, doesn't lose its value. That, that's essentially what what this what this serves. Maybe a little yeah. shot of music helps give the give the words a, a, a certain life that they wouldn't have otherwise because they're just they're flat on the page and we accept of course that we have the right to peaceable assemblies everybody's going to nod about that but situate it in in a in a protest song and, yeah. and sing it so that's the idea since you brought up Marvin Gaye and we're talking about appropriation I, I have to t ask your thoughts on Robin Thicke's blurred lines uh -huh. which you know um, when I hear that, uh, blasting through the speakers. Yeah. Thankfully, it's waned in, in the last week or two. Um, you know, I, I, I immediately wanted to shout to the high heavens, you were ripping off one of Motown's greatest innovators. Got to give it up. That's what this is. It's absolutely clear that this cannot even compare to the original f song. And yet, no one seems to question this. And, of course, Robin Thicke did this uh, injunction against Marvin Gaye's family mm -hmm. so they couldn't actually sue for copyright infringement. So this kind of appropriation uh, that is accepted in, in our culture, I mean, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? It's, it's, it's becoming, I think, more... In, I mean, I guess it was inevitable given we're a sampling and remix happy culture. But, you know, uh, if it, music isn't, isn't safe from these impulses either is what I'm trying to say. And I'm wondering, you know... What you're, what you're, what, if there's a solution to this, to by either creating more songs or by making sure that it's all about twisting the words or, or what? Well, Ed, I'm fascinated that you have that view of that song. Um, first <laughs> of all, um, and I, I really have to say, I have a very different feeling about it. Huh. Um, 
I um, I love Marvin Gaye. Yeah. I mean, absolute genius, total genius. Um, I don't think that Blurred Lines is an appropriation of a Marvin Gaye song. I think it's a new thing. I actually think it's, I like the song. I like the video. I actually dance around the kitchen to that song. So I think we are, as far as Blurred Lines, uh, what I didn't like was to use the legal system. It, it sickens me to have uh, two, one side getting injunctions against another side. I mean, when Ray Parker was... Um, the Huey Lewis su- thing, yeah. He was sued by... Uh, or or uh, what did he do? He sued Ray Huey Parker, Lewis. Yeah, Ghostbusters got, used the same, right. a similar line okay. to uh, Huey Lewis. Right. I want a new drug, yeah. You know, the thing that we have to accept about pop music is, unless you're a certain kind of boutique composer, there are so few chords. There are so few bass lines. The melodies are often very, very similar. But because of this mystical conjoining of lyrics and melody and just the uh, tonal qualities of a given voice, a given way of singing, um, I mean, Blurred Lines is delivered completely differently. The There's some... There's some superficial similarities between it and which is the name of the Marvin Gaye song. Oh, got to give you, got to give you that. Yeah, I mean, brilliant, brilliant yeah. Marvin Gaye song, I, but I just don't think it takes away at all from Blurred Lines, which has a tr- just an infectious, delightful quality to me. Um, that even though it, the drum line is almost exact, and even though the bass line is. Uh, a more rudimentary form of what Marvin Gaye did. I mean, well, but, play, but, play but, the two, I mean, I mean, I, I know. I, maybe I've spent far too much time playing the two songs together and getting infuriated. <laughs> I can't get infuriated. I, I mean, the drum line. I mean, if you if you really get into drum lines and the number of of ways to, they're just they're. It's very hard not to have. I, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would want to say these are both. Terrific songs. I think Marvin Gaye's probably a better song. I mean, we're going to have to say that Marvin Gaye truly is a genius. But I mean, that I think that the Blurred Lines has a kind of humor and a, a lightness of touch that I really like in a song. So, so I would want to come to the defense of uh, Robin Thicke. I would. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm wow. sorry. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I think I also look at it in terms of, you know, white culture appropriating from black culture, uh, the specified desire. We want to do an homage to uh, to Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, and we will we'll write this and produce this song in an hour. The sheer kind of mechanical nature of that, like... Did they, is that the truth? Yeah, about that, it? yeah, that's basically. They what wrote it, it in an hour. They, they, I believe it was produced in an hour, and I think it was written in in a similarly small period of time. And like, for, but again, I'm not bothered by say George Harrison's "My Sweet Lord" stealing "She's So Fine" because that was entirely subconscious. Hmm. Even though, and, and there's also enough of a distinction in terms of the way it's produced, even though it's the exact same line. Mm-hmm. To, to kind of justify it, and I can enjoy both songs, and both songs work off of the other. So there's my kind of... But then, of course, this is also pre-loops, this is pre-beats, this is pre-remixing uh, uh, and all that. But I, I have to ask, you know, is there any kind of musical appropriation that you that just offends you? Yes. Or, you know, what kind oh, of, what of would be an example? Well, one of the ones that really troubles me... Um that I write about in in Traveling Sprinkler is the, is the movie music. Yeah. The movie music business is shameless. 
And it's not a question of kind of echoing an infectious beat that many people have echoed or, or maybe a chord progression that we've heard you know, somewhere. Oh, the Beatles did that. This is, a, this is something where you have an original, you have a movie and then you put in a score that uses somebody else's things and then the, the new composer is hired to imitate those particular needle drop points hans hack zibber yeah <laughs> you know and and really it uh so the one i wrote about that really shocked me was um uh the born identity yeah. uh is a tremendous score by the way also has a great paul oakenfold song in it you know yes just dropped in and during a chasing i think that was one of the early moments that i was aware of paul oakenfold being, being new to all that at the time but anyway he was also in the anthologist Paul Oakenfold's mention? Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Channel Channel likes Paul Oakenfold, <laughs> where he's talking about his trans stuff. So there. Yeah. Well, and it helped me. I mean, I listened to Oakenfold and a couple other trans people because there's very few words. I listened to that a lot while I was writing the last three, three four books. Um, but The Born Identity. But The Born Identity is a tremendous thing. Happens to begin with a bassoon, so I'm, you know, I'm... I'm blown away already but uh and then it has all this inventive percussive stuff that does allude to certain things like uh baracuda fantastica and other things that i but it is its own thing and and then harry gregson williams does a movie i think it's called deja vu or something like that and it's just such a shameless appropriation of everything that's good about the about the, and yet, and the bizarre thing when you mentioned the Hans Zimmer is, is that they both work together. So yeah. I'm just thinking, well, maybe uh, Powell is the name of the composer of the Born Identity, and and Harry Gregson Williams had a had lunch, and Harry said, it "Really, and I loved that score, and I was just wondering if I could use it." And you know, his old friend John Powell said, "Sure, maybe maybe it was something like that because it's so outrageous." And of course, there, there, there's pop songs that you hear and you realize, man, that little trick, some that is not your trick. That's somebody else's trick. And it, you know, a little riff or, or a, 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 just a, and it's used in, in, in hip hop. There's, there's, you know, there, there, in, in, in the early days of hip hop, there was an awful lot of uncredited appropriation. Yeah. But, um, it, and, and of course, it's. It, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you that there are these moments where you hear some fairly reasonably talented white performer doing somewhat less well what some black performer did 35 years ago brilliantly. And you think, what are you wasting our time for? I mean, this is just, you are just riding somebody else's wave. And so I have that indignation that, from time to time, yeah. But it's interesting that your indignation involving appropriation involves movie music. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the the movie music is there to create a mood to either lull or manipulate the audience into a particular state, mm-hmm. uh, to in a particular emotional state. Uh, and if that is actually revealed to be lifted or heavily derivative of some other score this is what gets gets your gets your 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 pitchfork up so to speak uh is is it is it kind of the combination of mediums that that uh that causes you to be a little bit more uh receptive to this kind of uh kind of uh problem or well and i'm i don't mean to i i just use that one oh, yeah. because i because i happen to write about it in the book but sure. but i just can't think of right now i know that it exists but i can't think of a moment 
in a pop song that's just coming to mind yeah. where it has that same kind of shameless, um, so close, you know, where, where uh, but there are, who is it? I think I remember listening to an interview of Carol King years and years ago, maybe in the in the 70s even, or 80s or something, where she said, yeah, that was back when I was, before she was famous and had her tapestry and all that. Uh, yeah, my job was they would tell they would you know there would be a top forty hit, and it had a certain groove and rhythm and sound, just a sound. And my job was to duplicate that, yeah, but make it a different song, yeah. And so many, and and she did it, but brilliantly. And you know, it the the remaking, the refashioning, produced new hits that then influenced and back and things flow back. I mean, this is a this is a grand collaboration and there are abuses and there are people who uh, are doing sneaky thefts that we don't want to encourage but we don't want to have a chilling effect right yeah, we yeah. don't want we want people to learn from other people and be able to say wow that is so neat that I can't help it my fingers have to go in a similar <laughs> direction I have to make an allusion to somebody else's guitar solo you know yeah, this brings to mind um, something I wanted to bring up, and I was going to bring up later, but I'll bring up now. In Narrow Ruled, one of the essays in The Way the World Works, you describe putting a dot on the margin of a book mm -hmm. to note a passage, which is very interesting because this was written before Twitter, where you actually go ahead and click a favorite <laughs> of someone's tweet and all that. Sure. Um, to me, this actually is almost a, the analog idea of plus one or liking something on Facebook. Mm. Um, you also describe in that same essay filling several notebooks with quotes you transpose from mm -hmm. uh, other books, which is very much uh, what people do on Tumblr now. Mm. Uh, and and, I, and I'm curious about this. Do you see the, these digital forms of, as you put it, signing someone else's mind signature, does this maintain the same spirit uh, that you see in the analog form? What are your thoughts on this? I think they're, I, 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 yeah, sure. I think very similar, and especially with Twitter, because they're people who are brilliant quoters, um, and who can just pull out of of a big jungle of something, somebody's argument, pull out the the thing that just captures it, just the essence. Boom! In those limited number of characters, those and those people, the genius for doing that. There was no outlet <laughs> until until Twitter, um, because the, the, because nobody recognized that it itself was a form. The beauty of a of a of a chosen pearl. There were people. Um, there were anthologists actually of who would go through and find pearls of Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, and they, and you would actually. Uh, what, what is his name? Logan Pearsall Smith did this. Went through Shakespeare, and for me, it's it's a much better way to read Shakespeare because Shakespeare in the raw is you know especially with some of those plays is just unbelievably tedious and heaps of bodies and i can't stand it but if if it's when but he's such a genius that there's there are these beautiful elizabethan moments you know and somebody like logan pearsall smith pulls them out so okay so the tweeters like that what i was what i how the dot in the margin thing that i used to do and um, still do sometimes was helpful because there was no typing involved. I type too fast, and, and when I type, I don't think about the words enough sometimes. So the idea of 
finding something, reading something that I thought was beautiful, interesting, puzzling, comical, you know, and moving that to a commonplace book, putting the quotes down, quotation marks down, and slowly handwriting it was that it it made me go very slowly, word by word. I had to actually form these letters. And my handwriting is, because I do, do so little of it, is just, I have little twitches. I mean, I've really forgotten how to write. You know? I, I wrote someone a thank you <laughs> note last night, and it was really weird because it, I used, we used to do this all the time. I was doing a handwritten thank you yeah. note, and it just felt such a so foreign. So like, what am I doing? What yeah. am I? What is my hand doing? And I, yeah. I, it was really weird to see to just to compose sentences like that yeah. as opposed to typing them. I just yeah. that's how how locked we are. And yet, there's also something amazing about that too. But yeah. but you know, it's like we're we're allowing our our hands to atrophy in in this expression. I mean, it's sure. Yeah, how, how does this work in terms of like how you've moved from dot and transposing to, to digital. I mean, I, I think we need that. I think we need to exert ourselves to some degree, don't you think? Well, we, so handwriting and, and keeping maybe keeping that lobe of your brain fresh with a little yeah. handwriting is not a bad thing because, after all, that, that connects you with the kind of evolved, the primal way that we recorded things with, you know, with either a left or right hand, depending on our handedness. That's a powerful part of being... Human, so it wouldn't be a. It would be, I think, a sad loss to have everyone doing nothing but typing. Uh, but the reality is, I I only handwrite when I sign my name and when I on a check, or if I if I'm at a reading and somebody asks me to sign a book, and then if I tell myself I want to think about prose slowly and and I read a Samuel Johnson essay, yeah, um, or any any number of things, and and just watch the words appear under the little rolling ball and see the gel come out on the page and 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 then and then always always i get that discovery of of something popping out but you know i put the comma in and i'm just read the next phrase and i'm going to copy it out and a little idea sneaks up out of the crevices of the two of the two moments of my handwriting and and something else comes into my own mind so it it feeds my own thinking um, and helps me it helps me understand remind myself that prose is it's a it's kind of a prosaic word but prose is really a beautiful lyrical instrument and it 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 needs to be treated carefully and thought about and practiced and (laughs) I mean, it's you know, it's like it's got to polish. It's got to when it's done right. It's it's something that we really want to slow down and admire. Um, and and I so I like doing that. I still do that. And yet, um, there was actually, I believe, it was a Slate essay that was arguing for the abolishment of handwriting in school. Oh, sure. Um, and you know, the notion of of that actually disappearing also means that an entire way of expressing language disappears and immediately people grab kids are going to grab for their phones they're going to grab for their tablets and they're not necessarily going to slow down and actually try to have that kind of brain to hand connection that comes that is very specific with applying ink to paper i mean you know uh, well this is interesting in light of the fact that you also wrote a harper's essay recently arguing for the uh, the case against algebra 2 mm-hmm. um you know Start with handwriting first. Uh, you know, do you think that uh, that this should 
constantly be taught until the end of time, or do human beings inevitably move to other forms mm. of expressing themselves? Well, I mean, I think it happens. But my my mother in law was went to a ex, uh, who is in her eighties now went to an experimental school when she was a kid, and she never was taught to handwrite. Yeah. So she has a a kind of evolved version of print handwriting. My son never bothered to learn handwriting. Um, they're both doing fine, and they but they because there are enough occasions in life where you still have to write down sentences, write handwrite a thank you letter, as you say, that kind of thing. Um, they they both have the ability. I mean, uh, uh, so it probably won't die out. The other thing you can do, let's say you're not a per- let's say it's a person who thinks, well, the hell with handwriting. I I have my you know my little keyboard or my and I'm happy. You you can get the same kind of slowing down experience by reading things aloud, and that also makes a new link in your mind. But it's because because the heard part, the heard components of the words, are are being forced to the top of your consciousness as opposed to the red forms. Yeah. Well, to tackle your Algebra 2 essay, sure. uh, and I want to get this right, uh, you argued against Algebra 2 writing that we expose our students to hairy, square-rooted, polynomial, divorce-radish clumps of mute symbology mm-hmm. that irritate them, that stop them in their tracks, that they can't understand. Um, a number of people have written blog posts in response to this essay, and they point out that abolishing Algebra 2 would actually have grave socioeconomic impact. In fact, it's kind of along the lines of what I was suggesting with the appropriation of Marvin Gaye. I mean, an educator by the name of Jose Vilson, he pointed out that if you got rid of Algebra 2, people in the higher rungs of society, they're going to get access to that knowledge that people in the lower rungs will not. My feeling, and I say this also as someone who, you know, grew up in public schools, used public libraries, that all of this should be available. And then also, the knowledge isn't necessarily the problem, but it's actually the way that teachers are expressing that particular knowledge. So, I mean, I'm wondering, you know, why throw out a particular subsector if, in fact, this can empower uh, people, perhaps people in uh, impoverished communities, to possibly be our future innovators? I mean, why, you know, it's it's like... Ed, uh, Ed, Ed, Ed. You're, you're, the thing is that you're, of course we want everybody, you're not, I did not ever say in that article that we want to abolish Algebra 2. It's yeah. a brilliant human innovation that is responsible for eight zillion trillion great innovations in our life, right? Yeah. You don't want to abolish it. It's never, it, that was never the argument. What you, what the article was saying was that, uh, that that making algebra two a high school requirement for every single American high schooler is causes more dropouts, increases human suffering, and is also not characteristic of all the of most of the twentieth century. That all of the period of time when people were able to make all kinds of terrific discoveries and, and America was the technological leader was a time in which algebra, in which a tiny, a small percentage, less than, what was it, something like a quarter or a third of American high school students took any algebra at all. Yeah. So it, the, I, I think to say, I think that is a, the, that the, the argument that this is somehow 
that set, making Algebra 2 an elective, just the way, you know, um, poetry writing would be or is an elective, or music, or all sorts of great things, um, is not an attack on Algebra 2. It's saying this is, if you, if your mind is pulling you in this direction, go with it. And ha we want really good, well-paid teachers of math, just like we want good teachers. And if we if we reduce the number of people who are forced over and over again, and this is why it's such a completely misguided thing to say that this is that this will uh, be a bad thing for poor kids. It's ridiculous because this hurdle is is destroying kids' lives in Chicago and elsewhere. With you know they're forced to take double dose algebra it increases dropout rates the main source of frustration and dropping out is required math courses that are teaching the stuff that they know they will never use because they are not it is just absolutely not something that they are going to find useful in life and yet they should be able to graduate from high school and go to college and do all the great things that they can do well, there are two responses to this. The first is that, as you know, schools, when they have budget cuts, the first thing they're going to cut are electives. And as a result, the more of general knowledge you push into electives, the more likely it's going to disappear from our from our culture, from our education. The second, uh, the second concern that is uh, – there was a second concern I, I had um, – uh, oh, well, yes. I mean, I wanted to find out what do you think – should be a compulsory subject for education. Uh, you know, what I don't think there should be compulsory. I don't. Th I think it's the reason to pick algebra two as the kind of key thing is because it's the one that is on the top of the list of most hated subjects. And and people say this is why I am not becoming a nurse. This is why I not did not get into college. This subject is the turnstile that f people fail to go through and fail more often than others. But I don't think, I, do I think that all high school students should be forced to read a Shakespeare play or a Hawthorne's, uh, you know, the Scarlet, Scarlet Letter, Letter or Fitzgerald's? Of course not. It's ridiculous because it just, it kills those books. Most High school experiences are negative, and most required subjects are required for the wrong reasons. I just, I, I think that what we need from life is the ability to read, write, do arithmetic, you know, those basic things school can give us more efficiently than parents can give us. By the time we get to high school, we're ready to do stuff, and yet we have this situation where we need four years of enhanced babysitting. And though, and what we've done is come up with these kind of so subjects that sound like serious subjects. So you're going to learn to write an essay. You know as well as I do that those cl classes are terrible. And they tell you that you need a thesis sentence. And you, my son was told he needed to use two semicolons per page, you know, that was important ridiculous the stuff that kids are taught is about about the american essay is completely false and teaches them that everything has got to be serious and you've got to state your argument then you sum up your argument then you read uh, the great essayists eb white or benchley or anybody else and you realize that 
It has nothing to do with reality. So none of those subjects are, I think, should be required. I think there's got to be some basic threshold of reading ability. And then I think if you're going to require every single high school kid to go to school to the 16, you're also going to say, you can choose. Just choose. All right? I went, I did that. I went to a public high school that was called the School Without Walls, ninth grade. They said, choose. Yeah. Do whatever you want. But the problem... And, and everybody did fine. I mean... But, but the problem is, is that we all have to learn things that we don't particularly like. And when well-liked becomes the qualifier for knowledge, uh, then you encourage future generations to say, ah, you know, drones, uh, you know, surveillance state, ah, I don't like thinking about it. I'd rather actually go ahead and uh, do this, which is easy, which is actually something I like doing, as opposed to challenging myself and doing something with something that is uh, difficult. I mean, you know, how do you, I, I, that's, that's my concern with this particular argument. And then, of course, you get people like, there's this terrible essay that Dan Coyce wrote called Eating Your Cultural Vegetables, in which he says, well, I don't really like uh, you know, watching Tarkovsky is is like doing work, and, I, and I'm like, this is absolutely beautiful. Sometimes you need to be placed in this kind of state so mm -hmm. that after five minutes you realize, oh, I, I'm actually uh, in this kind of environment, and it's actually challenging what my perception is, and that that's why I, I'm worried. I was a little worried about you, Nick, for this Algebra Two essay. You know, I know, I, I, I. I... Of course, life gives these times we've, and where you have to do stuff you don't want to do. Yeah. And but high school is t terribly bad at preparing people for that, because it creates this fictional notion that if you plug away and do your problem sets and you nail yourself to your chair for three and a half hours after school is done and you're able to sit quietly and comply for all those hours every single day of your entire precious youth that you will do well and it's it, it and the system is actually rigged so that it's true because then you'll get into you know stanford or something because you've sat still and then you've done well on your sats and and it doesn't mean it doesn't lead to people who actually have interesting ways of questioning drones it leads to people who are compliant and are willing to sit still and I, which is not to say i you know i believe in asking people to do things that they don't want to do and i've certainly been asked to do they got done stuff that i didn't didn't want to do especially in, in work i mean yeah. work is a mixture of, of what you do want to do and what you don't want to do but no it's I think when think back about in your own school days, what you what you take away from high school are these precious things that somebody, in an inspired moment, lodged in your mind, and there are just a fact, a stray fact. I remember this one teacher t talking about the migration routes of the the Vandals and the Goths and other barbarians through Europe, and it's just a beautiful thing that happened in five minutes on the chalkboard. Um, if high school can give people some things that actually stick in their memory, we're doing well. What happens now is we make people take these consecutive subjects and learn chapter by chapter things. And we, we make people read books and then write after every chapter, write a list of little questions about what they have read and what they will read. And they, it destroys the flow of reading. So I just think we're doing it 
wrong. And I, I, I don't, I think, in, including much more choice by the time people are 14, 15 years old, it would be a much better thing because, you, because the kids would actually be paying attention to, to it. And if they want to sit and listen to music all day long or, you know, smoke some pot or, or, or take a walk and fly a kite or just ride fast um, down a hill or just, you know, lie in bed and look at the ceiling, they have to learn the hardest thing of all, which is that nobody is asking them for anything, really. They have to do it themselves. If you're going to come up with something that adds to the culture, you're going to have to do it because it has to come from you. That's what I learned from high school. I spent days watching reruns and being bored in a sort of strange trance-like boredom of thinking, I don't have to be anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm 15 years old. Well, I should practice a bassoon, but I don't. I mean, nobody cares. I don't have to go to class. And it was a really useful thing to find out that I could, um, that I had to make it happen myself. And that is what high school is not teaching people. Well, I would agree with you on that point. Being placed in a state of boredom allows you to develop interests very fast mm -hmm. uh, or develop ways of coping with that boredom. I, I'm just – I don't know if it should actually be aligned to educational things. But I actually – because I've got to get a lot into the time we have. Mm -hmm. I actually – I wanted to talk about um, – well, I have to talk about House of Holes really quick. Mm -hmm. um, Samuel Delaney – promulgated this idea of pornotopia mm -hmm. where basically characters inhabit this universe where everybody can have sex for whatever reason mm -hmm. and um, and that is certainly the spirit of House of Holes mm -hmm. um, but it was extremely odd to see someone as mean-spirited as Katie Royfe become one of your big advocates for that book she um, suggested previously that most young American male novelists were repressed in some way and weren't actually talking about this but she advocated House of Holes for the way that it describes numerous sexual encounters mm -hmm. in a new language. She says, Baker has written both a dirty book and a scary book, which I found quite interesting. I I'm wondering, you know, to what degree was this an exercise in uh, expressive possibility? Was Delaney in the back of your mind in any, in any way? Or I don't know about Del Delaney. Okay. I just wanted to write about it. I mean, certainly, I like the word por pornotopia. I yeah. wanted to write about a, a pornographic ideal universe where people just go in their minds and do amazing things and swap genitalia and and have a great time yeah <laughs> and i had a great time writing it and that's what that's what the book was and you know it's not it was obviously not the book for everybody but uh it's a book for the right mood i guess is uh, you know it was certainly the mood that i was in was to do that um and yet you know of course that's not that's not the only way to write about sex. I mean, and it's just that sometimes I think with literary fiction, it has to be a downer. You know, you, it ha the sex has to be sad sex or, or in some way guilty or fraught. And um, I want to, or, or with all kinds of submission and dominance and stuff that I don't even understand. So this was just, can you write a book? And maybe you can't, but can you? try to write a book in which people just just have sex just have a lot of sex that's what ha and 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 make up some names for things and try to make it funny have some new i what the happiest thing i uh, was uh, the happiest moment or one of the happiest moments i guess was the invention of the porn decahedron yeah 
because and, and the idea that this person, <laughs> this couple, is sitting in this kind of swiveling chair in the middle of this grazed, uh, um, you know, twelve-sided thing, projecting all this. Their, their playlist, their personal playlist of, of little porn clips, there's something that sort of represents a, mo- a moment of culture where we have this infinitude of, you know, pornography around us and we, you know, we're still reasonably okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm actually going to argue that House of Holes actually is, strangely enough, a realist book. You're just actually <laughs> several years ahead of the curve because we now have like Grinder and Tinder in which people go ahead and grab their phone out and then go ahead and text someone and next thing you know they they're hooking up. I yeah. mean now now we're actually moving increasingly to a culture in which anybody is basically fuckable so to speak. And so I I I'm wondering, you know, were did were you responding to any kind of anything sexually you detected in the culture at all or But I don't well, I don't know about grinder or tinder yeah. and I'm really out of it. I live in Maine. South Berwick, <laughs> yeah. Maine. I live with my wife and we do not know anything about anything except, you know, small town life at this point. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, no, I think I was just responding to the idea that we all can go mentally to a house of holes, a, a place. What I was thinking of was the sea of holes in um, Yellow Submarine. Yeah. You know, I've got a hole in my pocket and, and Ringo is wandering around and suddenly, boom, they're in this new place. And this place has a lot of nakedness and, and stuff. And, and that was the excitement for me. It, whether... I think we probably were in, we're more in that situation of you know quick hookups and everything in the pre-AIDS era probably uh, although that certainly wasn't true of my own life but uh, right I mean yeah. is it now now what's great now is or what's sort of tiring now is the constant sexual joking um, when it's brilliant like in the New Girl there's a, there are a couple of soliloquies that Schmidt uh, has that are just brilliant funny funny crazy things that he can do um so but then there also this this endless because you can say fuck and talk about penises now and all that stuff on tv and you know i did last night on colbert I, you know he asked he said he said he started to use penis and i'm using penis and i'm thinking oh you know I know, I know. We can say penis, great. So what, you know? Penis but, is just like Obama's, basically. <laughs> well, that was it, and yeah. I was trying to tell him last night. I was, and I didn't do a very good job of explaining it. But we need some new names. These are the penis is one of the worst names for any bodily part you could imagine. Who did this to us? We need a lot of new names for that, and maybe if and we have some good ones. But those also get tired. So we uh, we kind of kind of refresh the language. That's what poetry does. That's what novels do. That's what what slang does. You know, we've got to mix things up a bit. What's the best word for it then? Cock, dick, or just we have to find something else? Well, okay. John Thomas. <laughs> no, I don't think it. I, I in the Fermat, I thought, oh, it's called a dick, so I'll call it a Richard. Yes, you know? that's right. But. Um, I think uh, it's, you know, the, the real, when you get down to it, there is, so the cock dick kind of wordage that you're talking is, um, is, is useful at a certain moment of the sex scene that you're writing. You sometimes have to use the, the deep hindbrain words. But what I did was I thought, okay, let's just call it a cock dick. 
You know, <laughs> let's put, or let's just call it a, let's put several of these, you know, because the single syllable that we all know has a power, but let's, you know, fuse a couple more of them together. Um, what is the best word? What is the best word for um, for that? I don't know. I try, I, I came up with any number and I, I'm hoping that, you know, one, one or two of them have some staying power. Um, <laughs> Quite literally. Uh, something tells me that you're an astute student of Eric Idle's The Penis Song from The Meaning of Life. That whole thing where he does this little ditty. You, you know that moment? It's it's right before the uh, the restaurant scene. It's, wouldn't it be nice to have a penis? Wouldn't it be nice to have a cock? You know that song? <laughs> I have to go and look that up. I, 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 I can send you the I, link. He no. goes, so three cheers for your Richard or John Thomas. Hooray for your one-eyed trouser snake. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he does a whole series of possible yeah. terms for it. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm extremely curious also about uh, Paul Chowder's interest in the Victorian. He suggested in The Anthologist that free verse meant that you were sexually free. And there, of course, is Tim's book on Queen Victoria, Killer Queen. Um, he also confesses in Traveling Sprinkler to, cons- to skipping the incestuous parts of Victorian pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, Abby. From Vox, also enjoys Victorian pornography. I suspect Victorian pornography also played into the writing of House of Holes. So I must ask you, Nick, what is this deal? What's the deal with your uh, interest uh, in Victorian pornography? Is this a way of, I suppose, acknowledging it in fiction, or, or you know, are you a scholar of some some private sense? Or well, I I I thought I did forgotten about that. Abby reads Victorian pornography. Um, I don't, I don't know a lot about it, but what I thought before I read House of Holes that it was that I should read some more of it. Yeah. And I've just found, wow, what? Is, whoa, okay, uncles, daughters, ass, well, come <laughs> on, stop, stop. Just why would that be so necessary always? So the, the these acknowledged classics are always doing it. So I had a little, you know, registered a little dissatisfaction with it. The, the work of classic of pornography that i think really is a classic is is pre-victorian i guess it's fanny hill yes fanny hill is a really brilliant book um i got the john cleland like uh wordsworth classic years ago which i still have like which is came like yeah it's like i bought it for like 50 cents from something and like what the heck is fanny hill and i ended up reading it too oh the audiobook version of that is a knockout oh which which audio who did the audio well the nice thing was i like librivox um because it's all yeah all free it's all free, and it, it's not that it's that it's so great because it's free. It's great because it's all these different voices, and they all, they all, some of them have accents, and they all read it a different way. And so you just get this kind of tapestry effect when you're listening to a book. But, but, but I've listened to Fan. I've never read Fanny Hill, but but I've listened to Fanny Hill. Yeah, and I loved that. I think I thought it was really really smart, and obviously very influential, important phase in the history of the novel. While we're on the subject of reading, uh, you know, from the anthologist, uh, almost done. (laughs) Um, Chowder actually says, so many poets are disappointments when you hear them on the radio. Uh, And yet Paul Chowder does, in fact, take to the airwaves. Uh, We also see that Roz produces this medical show for NPR in Traveling Sprinkler called Medicine Ball. Um, What is it about? I mean, maybe this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of how words are transposed from text to to music but i am curious as to why this is a keen concern of uh, of the world of, of of paul chowder why uh why radio or why talking about things is is kind of a way to to get at the truth of things uh uh unlike say one's inner thoughts 
I, I, it goes back to the whole podcasting thing, yeah. which I think uh, I was. I mean, I I listen to podcasts all the time, and I and I I I, I had that moment in uh, the anthologist where I saw these podcasts and nobody's listening to them, and they puff up and die. Yeah. Because I have always thought I want to do a podcast, and I have all this. Then I have all this reticence. I'm shy. I'm not. You know, could I do it? No. But I I think that talking things out and having a conversation like this or or in a monologue or whatever that there that you get at things in a more interesting way and you hear people's inflections and that's so crucial so i it's part of the voicedness of of words and so i i'm always pulled back attracted to it and so in the second book i have him do sort of these fictional things lead-ins hello fellow you know, this is Paul Chowder, you know, welcome to the f- hour of festal splendor and razor wire. And, you know, I, I love the idea of coming up with odd intros to a fictional podcast. And then I wanted, then I sort of got carried away and said, this is PRI, Public Radio International. Because I thought, oh, he would, you know, he would think of himself um, actually you know, having a, a little minute on radio, you know. So you got all these Nick Baker files on your computer of you doing these radio bumpers and all oh, that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, you should, I've got... should release some of them. <laughs> no, it's fun. I and I love audio. I've got several yeah. field recorders. I'm like, talking into them and uh, recording stuff. I, and I love thinking about conversations by, you know, recording and transcribing. It's how I learned how to do. I did a lot of transcribing uh, when I was in in my 20s yeah. for for uh, money and that's how I sort of learned how people talk yeah um, I had no idea we were talking this long <laughs> so I'm going to cut this short but uh, or rather long yeah. but but Nick thank you very much it was a great pleasure as always to talk with you so Ed it's always a pleasure thank you that's after you